There have been days recently when it seems like Robert E. Lee is as divisive a figure in our own era as he was a century and a half ago, when he led a rebel army devoted to the preservation of slavery. Long portrayed in the romantic revisionist memory of the defeated South as a gentlemanly and near-perfect Christian warrior on behalf of the old ways, Lee was certainly a creature of his time. But he was also trained as an engineer at the United States Military Academy, and his army career before the Civil War tracked closely with the modernization of the American way of war. Who was Robert E. Lee? How much of the old revisionist fantasy has any purchase on reality? And how much was Lee as much an innovator and creature of modernity as the man who ultimately defeated him? His fellow West Point graduate, Ulysses Grant. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean, and this is the School of War. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Wayne Shea. He's a professor of history at the United States Naval Academy. He has a PhD from the University of Virginia. And his dissertation, um, it, it's, it's worth saying because it's relevant to what we're going to be talking about today, was called The Old Army in War and Peace, West Pointers in the Civil War Era, 1814 to 1865. Um, he's the author of numerous articles. Um, he's the co-author of a fantastic uh, book from about five years ago. Um, that I recommend to all of our listeners. It's called The Savage War, A Military History of the Civil War. He co-authored it with Williams and Murray. Um, and it's a kind of uh, grand strategic analysis of the war with a particular emphasis on the Western theater of war uh, and its significance. Uh, Wayne, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks you so much. Um, another thing that's really interesting about your background, I want to talk to you a little bit about before we, we get into uh, Robert E. Lee and the U.S. Army, which is our subject for the day. Um, is that in addition to your academic career, um, you served with the State Department uh, in Iraq on a provincial reconstruction team. Maybe you could tell us um, a little bit about that experience and just your background in general. Um, you know, how did you decide that you wanted to be a historian? What took you to Iraq? What took you to the Naval Academy? Give us uh, some, some sense of how you came to be who you are today. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I, I also, I, I just want to preface these comments. You know, none of these, all these comments I'm going to make today are, are my own private opinions or should not be construed in any way, shape or form as, as official, you know, statements by the Navy or the Naval Academy or anything like that. I, I was trained as a, as a military historian. I was always interested in the Civil War. Um, I arrived at the Academy in 2005, um, which is obviously post 9-11. And, uh, and I ended up on that PRT in Iraq, I guess, basically because I was part I was sort of on the tail end of the so-called surge, which people may or may not remember now. So Iraq kind of fell into to increasingly uh, catastrophic chaos starting in, in 2006. Uh, there was a response by the Bush administration to surge larger numbers of, of U.S. Army and U.S. Marine military forces in general. Um, and there was a civilian surge, which is not as well known. So there was an attempt to mobilize more civilian expertise to deal with things like uh, economic development, uh, rule of law, uh, nation building, so to speak, right? So I was part of this, I was part of the whole population protection coin thing. Right, right, right. I was been there between the summer of 2008 and 2009. Uh, so basically attached to most of the time an infantry company, basically anything not security related 
was in my zone. So that in my area, that would have mostly involved talking and meeting with, with ethnic political parties who might not have liked each other very much and trying to get them to buy into the democratic process. So that was, that was what, that was what I did. Um, government in a box. I think, you know, that term, <laughs> that was part of your I've world. lived that term. Uh, yes. And so I'm sorry to say I was maybe part of the origins or the complex of that and, and some of the things, the unintended consequences of it, but that, and then, so after that, I came back. So I was always part of the Academy. I was basically loaned by the Academy to, to the state department and I returned and I've been just kind of a regular college professor at Elbit at a service Academy since. Did you learn anything in Iraq or did, did you take anything from your experiences in Iraq that have informed your your scholarship as a historian of the 19th century? That's that's a great question. Um, I think in a strange way, it made me more skeptical of historians. <laughs> There's nothing secret here, but I, I was there was a meeting that Deputy Commanding General of MND North, sort of one-star general, was talking to to now Lieutenant General Pyatt, who was in the news. Some people may know that, but uh, but yeah, at the time he was a brigade commander in Iraq. And he was talking about Tom Ricks' book on the surge, which I think it's called The Gamble, if I remember correctly. And uh and Walt Pyatt had been actually the, the operations officer, which was a fairly senior staff position in MND North during a period that Ricks was writing about. And Pyatt was kind of joking about how, although Ricks seemed to be thinking he was writing the first draft of history, none of it seemed to correspond with his actual recollection of what was happening there. I'm in all <laughs> sorts of cast of characters, as you know, in the war zone, you have heroes and you have knaves and you have a lot of people in between. There was a company commander I worked with, Stephen Weber, who, who struck me as incredibly impressive in so many ways. But I, it struck me that his story wasn't going to get out because he had been deploying to Iraq every other year. And I think he later deployed to Afghanistan. You know, while there are a lot of people in the public press uh, who did publish books, right? And, and I'm not saying anyone's right or wrong about this, who did get connections, public platforms, because they were Rhodes Scholars, because they had the right connections, because they had the right... Uh, links to the media establishment and their stories were told and, and those stories weren't necessarily wrong, but there was definitely kind of a distortions of perspective. And it made me a little bit more, look a little bit more scant at, at what historians aspire to do. I don't think it led me to despair at it, but it just, it was a good, you know, there's always a useful humility check. It also made me wonder what, what I might think of how historians might look at my, what I had done. That, you know, they gave me some pause because I realized I might not agree with how someone might look at what I was doing. So speaking of uh, of narratives and challenging narratives and, um, you know, comforting stories, not quite re reflecting the reality of, of things as they actually are. Let's let's talk about Robert E. Lee. I almost feel like we need a kind of trigger warning. Um, you, you know, should we should we ritually um, uh, state that we think that the Confederacy was a bad thing? And that slavery was wrong, um, uh, and it is good that the Confederacy was defeated. Which, of course, I do think, but I, I, I worry that um, even talking about Robert E. Lee, you know, um, puts one into some kind of minefield where people will suspect the worst of you. Do you, do you encounter that kind of phenomenon at all in your work? I personally do not. I mean, I do think that this has become a real, and I say this as someone who once gave us a, a lecture at what was once called the Museum of the Confederacy. It's no longer, it no longer exists uh, because it was essentially a, a product of uh, what we call the lost cause or just kind of post Civil War white Southerners attempt to create a, a kind of a positive portrayal of the Confederacy and of the antebellum period. Um, and, and they got this museum, right? And that has these essentially, essentially our lost cause or Confederate relics. And I gave, a, I gave a talk there about how Robert E. Lee's decision to secede was in fact not predetermined, that he really did have a choice. And you know, his, some of his family members stayed with the union. 
And I was kind of expecting a hostile reception from what, what was I assumed to be a lot of basically a white Southern audience. And honestly, they were fine with it. I think uh, now this was about 10 years ago. So I don't know. I think it might have been when, when the culture wars were not so yeah. intense. Yeah. Uh, but I do think a lot of the discussion about Lee, as you might expect, have been sucked into the discussion of monuments, right? And of face naming. And I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, and I've always been someone, for example, within the military establishment, I think a, a good rule of thumb about naming bases and statues uh, at places like the Naval Academy is that if someone took up arms against the government of the United States and Robert E. Lee did that, uh, they shouldn't have a building name. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a that's a reasonable line. But what, what we now have is this attempt, obviously, the, the thing is, that's not the only story that involves Lee. That's our narrative that plugs into our our problems, which are real, right, which involve issues of race and, 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 uh, and how we manage that. Uh, but as an academic historian, there's also lots of other things going on in the 19th century, which also have implications for us which are not directly related to that question, but which are not talked about as much simply because they don't plug into, you know, basically right. our, the intensity of our cultural wars. So, well, let's talk about Lee, who, who you've been doing a lot of work on um, recently. Um, and um, my impression is that, you know, there, there was there was once a view of Lee that he, whether one, um, uh, you know, took it in a positive or negative light, um, that he was a sort of representative, a kind of last dying representative in the American context of this old agricultural, um, you know, sort of pre-modern, pre-industrial politics um, that in the American context has happened also to be, a, you know, a slave state. Um, and he fought a battle, again, depending on one's point of view, um, you know, either heroically or, or villainously against an industrial modern North, right? My, my impression of your work is that you find this view just as a as an analysis, again, taking the, the good or bad aside, as an analysis of what Lee was, who he was, um, and the career that he led, just just woefully insufficient. Yes, I mean the, the short answer is is I see Lee as as very much a part of the modern world, um, and that starts with his education as an engineer at the United States military at, United States Military Academy at West Point. That starts with his association with the United States Army, which I kind of argue as an incredibly important modernizing institution in early American history because of its connection to American industrial development. Uh, many army officers are become important role, important members of the early managerial class of railroads. The Army Ordnance Bureau is, in, is a significant for early American industrial manufacturing, the so-called um, American system of replaceable parts. A lot of that starts out at things like the Springfield Arsenal, where they're making guns, right? Um, and that Lee is part of that. Like his, his early career involves things like uh, helping uh, improve uh, navigation in the Mississippi and St. Louis. That's part of his engineering tasks. It's not just a military engineering. There's also a lot of civil engineering work that the U.S. Army does. That the, the narrative you describe of the uh, of of Lee as being kind of this uh, this throwback to kind of a prior feudal age, you know, as you point out, for for some Americans, right, it's he's the he's a hindrance to progress. Uh, but then for people who are like the lost cause, he's kind of the last defender of what was in fact a superior 
social order, right? That was then rectified by the Civil War. And I think a lot of even academic work on the Confederacy and Lee has been kind of trapped in, in that kind of those two dueling stories, when in fact, there's a larger story where both the North uh, and the Confederacy, the Union and the Confederacy are both actually part of this larger story of the rise of, of the modern world. And they're both they're both of a piece with it, even though, of course, one side loses, but that's that's kind of a different issue. It's still modern. I, I know in your work, you're focused on the, the sort of the transformation of the U.S. Army um, between, uh, you know, what we'll describe as a, um, a middling performance. Maybe you would modify that um, in the War of 1812 um, up through the Mexican War and then ultimately the Civil War, um, you know, a period which essentially tracks with Lee's career. What takes Lee to West Point and what does he discover when he gets there? What's happening at West Point when Lee is a, is a student? West Point starts in, in 1802, uh, but it isn't really solidified. The so-called Thayer system isn't really established until shortly after the War of 1812. And by the time Lee is at, himself appears at West Point, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty well gelled there. So in Lee's era, West Point is fundamentally an engineering school. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the country's first real engineering school. Just to give people context, um, if you went to a school like Yale or Harvard in this period, you'd learn a lot of uh, Greek and Latin, you'd learn a lot of classical languages, you, you do a lot of focus on kind of what we now call the liberal arts. Um, and this is related to the fact that these schools were in many ways originally designed as, as training schools for the, for the, for the ministry. Um, if you wanted to go to an engineering school originally, uh, you would have to go to a place like West Point. And so West, now this is, West Point itself though, Sylvanus Thayer is modeled on the French Nicole Polytechnique, these French military schools, right? So um, as one might expect, a lot of early engineering education is, comes out of armies because armies need people who know how to build forts. Armies need people who know how to cast cannon and, and, uh, and calculate ballistics. Uh, there are lots of obviously kind of technical and scientific aspects of it. And so Lee goes into what's essentially the premier, what we would call STEM school in America. One thing I wanna emphasize though, it's not just the subject matter, it's the kind of the, the culture he's inculcated in. West Point cadets are very strictly disciplined. Uh, their behavior is very strictly monitored and their lives are quantified. Right. Uh, you know, we, we think we have it bad with surveillance and the Facebook algorithm and things like that. You know, the, the, the cadets are put into this kind of hot out system where if they misbehave, they get a demerit. Their class standing is kind of calculated and then they're ranked and their careers are judged. And by the way, the service academy still do this. Class ranking is still very important. So he's in this environment where everything is kind of rationally and systematically right. calculated. And for me, this is part of, of, uh, of Lee's modernness is that he's put into these systems where everything is carefully weighed and measured and things like that. And that, that's why he's an engineer. He's, he stands very high in his class. And then he goes into what in that period is essentially the elite of the army, which is the Corps of Engineers. It's one of the ironies of, of the Civil War and of the class of senior leaders on both sides of the war, right? That um, Lee is ultimately, you know, one of the model students, a model graduate, uh, of West Point is ultimately defeated by men who also attended West Point, uh, you know, with him or more or less with him um, and who who themselves chafed uh, at the system and, and did not do well by the standards of West Point of the day. Right. Both that would apply to both Grant and Sherman. Correct. Yes. I mean, I, I would say that Sherman did well, but could have done better because Sherman was <laughs> was was I mean, Sherman could have been an engineer. 
Sherman Sherman was indifferent as a cadet to to the demerit system. So if he had made more of an effort to stay in compliance, he probably could have been an engineer. Uh, but because his grades were so strong, <laughs> he still ended up being artillery officer, which is actually pretty good. Grant Grant was was uh, in many ways, I think, hostile and and uh, and did not like his experience there. And it and it and it it was not an issue of a lack of ability. It was that he he did not like the system of restraints. It was you know uh, the kind of constant surveillance, the incredible rigidity of discipline and things like that. He kind of rebelled against it, and that's why he ended up being a lowly infantry officer. Um, <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and and that is you know that's uh, you know that that's definitely part of the story. Uh, you know, and then you know it's a, it's an irony, isn't it? Then that Grant, the um, the ne'er do well uh, cadet um, who chafes at the system, becomes you know, the paragon of the modern form of war, the sort of grinding technological war of attrition, war of numbers. And Lee is, you know, again, you're sort of, you know, you're, you're pushing back against this in your work, but Lee is the, you know, avatar of, a, of, of an aristocratic old fashioned way of, of fighting on the battlefield. He goes into the Corps of Engineers, which, which you describe as the elite of the army at the time. What is the work of an army engineer? What, what, what is his job as a junior officer? His job is a mixture of, uh, I believe his first assignment is at Fortress Monroe, where he's actually in charge of helping design coastal fortifications. Uh, so the uh, part of the Army Corps of Engineers job, as you might expect, is to build a network of forts that are designed to protect American port cities, right? So Fort Sumter, where the Civil War breaks out, that's another uh, one of these places where someone like Lee would do the planning and supervision of construction of improvements at forts. Um, the Corps of Engineers is also because of the scarcity of, of engineering expertise as a whole and the Army's own kind of political savvy, quite frankly, is also then provides officers to work on civil uh, engineering projects. So uh, in Lee's case, this would be an early uh, job to, um, to basically improve navigation for, for, uh, for St. Louis. Um, in terms of combat, which then Lee sees in, in 1846 during the Mexican War, engineer officers uh, have a more direct, I guess from what we call now an operational role, frequently as scouts. Hmm. Um, uh, they would be very important for things like maps, making maps. Um, you know, now the American military can pull maps off satellites and, and kind of all the sort of geospatial intelligence. In this period, you'd have to send someone out to just make a map and, and they would have to have drafting skills and the necessary things. And also to do things like uh, plan and supervise the building of things like fortifications, not just fortifications, but also roads. Uh, so if you look at Lee's first combat posting, a lot of what he's actually doing is making maps. Uh, and he's also basically supervising road construction to allow the army to pass. And these are all skills that he would have learned uh, at West Point as part of this very technical curriculum. And, and he really distinguishes himself uh, in the Mexican War, correct? I mean, he has a, he has a sort of meteoric, um, if not meteoric rise, he comes to everyone's attention as a result of yes. his work in the war. There's two parts of his career, right? There is the engineer, the expert, the technician. Uh, but there is also the, the soldier that draws on kind of more, for lack of a term, romantic or, or uh, and, and this is actually where he gets more fame and it's usually what's better remembered. So he, he becomes a, an important staff officer for Winfield Scott. So the American war starts out in 46, the US military does, the US army does pretty well. The Mexican government refuses to capitulate. Uh, so what finally 
ends the war essentially is, is the United States uh, marches on Mexico City, which involves amphibious landing at Veracruz, and there's a need to march England and fight your way in. And Lee becomes an important staff officer on uh, Winfield Scott's staff. Winfield Scott is the commanding general. And Lee is basically, he's using those technical skills I described, but a lot of these involve, for lack of a better term, a lot of sort of daring do, right? There's a famous story where while on a scout, he is uh, hiding under a log in a water hole and and unbeknownst, there are all these Mexican troops who show up and Lee quickly has to sort of hide himself to not be captured. And he basically has to sort of conceal himself and be, and be silent for hours upon hours as all these Mexican troops are watering their horses and sitting on the log and doing all these things. So he, he, he's, he, had, he gains a justified reputation for being a courageous and skilled officer. And, you know, the analogy I use is, you know, that, that those scouting things, that's something like out of the Night Raid and the Iliad, right? This is not this is not actually something that would have been taught at West Point. It's actually something that's different and evolved. And it, it, it plugs into older notions of martial courage and honor and kind of personal distinction that don't fit in the box of, of the scientifically trained engineer. Though surely at West Point, there, there's in the, even in, the, in this period, there's some sort of appeal to and immersion of the students into, you know, traditions of personal courage and, and personal valor. Surely. I mean, you, you, you tell me if there, I'm missing something. There, there is, but, but there is, what's, what's curious is there is an odd disjunction. There is a conflict between that and the extraordinarily restrained. Part of it is because 19th century Americans of, of, of the officer class are very touchy, for lack of a better term, about their honor. Right, and part of their honor is usually an absence of uh, part of part of being an honorable gentleman is to actually be free, meaning be having kind of control over one's physical person and conduct. And there are aspects of the West Point disciplinary regime that actually clash with that. Um, this is why Sylvanus Thayer, that very important early superintendent, he is he's actually fired essentially by Jackson over disputes over discipline. By the way, you're, you have other controversies in other 19th century pre-Civil War colleges where there's attempts to kind of discipline student behavior and the students see themselves as University of Virginia had this issue famously. Um, you know, this is still a world where dueling is not so common, but still exists. And the kind of very regimented system actually provokes a reaction uh, from, from many West Point cadets, right? Um, you know, Jefferson Davis, for example, is a cadet and he famously has huge, let me give you, I can't remember what year would have, I think it's 1828. There is, I mean, there is a, there's a riot during Christmas, the infamous eggnog riot. This is in the late 1820s at West Point where cadets get drunk and, and that's exactly what it is. They riot, uh, uh, firearms are discharged. It's just kind <laughs> of, this, it's, it's actually in some ways far more extreme than anything we would have seen at the Naval Academy. It's a mutiny. I mean, that's actually what happens because there's this kind of explosion that occurs. There's a recognition, I think, in the army that you, that's that high-spiritedness, for lack of a better term, is actually needed for, for, for success in war, but it actually conflicts with attempts to build a more bureaucratized and rationalized bureaucracy. So as, as Lee is distinguishing himself and, um, you know, paving his path to high command um, in, in Mexico, what's Grant up to? Grant is a, a superb junior officer. He does fine in Mexico. Uh, he distinguishes himself also, wins a brevet. That's, that's the way army officers back then win kind of uh, valor awards, essentially. Uh, but unlike Lee, who, who goes on to a, a successful post-war career, uh, Grant finds 
garrison life in the army to be insufferable and ends up being in the 1850s, essentially bouncing around from unsuccessful jobs. And, and it's, and would have been, if it wasn't for the civil war, would have been sort of died in obscurity. Hmm. Uh, but hit that, you know, that is one of the ironies. He doesn't, he never really kind of finds his place until the war actually breaks out. All right. Um, and then Lee, after the war, he, he transfers to the cavalry, correct? Yes, right. So the, the army sets up some new cavalry regiments. Um, and so he goes from his staff position as an engineer to and, and switches posted most of the time in Texas. Um, and um, and that's that's basically what what he is. Uh, that's what's he, that's his posting until the, the Civil War breaks out. Is that a good thing for his career? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is less. I think it's frustrating to him, though, because uh, you know, when we're talking about irregular warfare. Part of his job is to deal with the Comanche and various uh, American Indian tribes uh, that are filtering back and forth across the Texas to the Mexican border. And like, like most U.S. Army officers, he generally finds that very frustrating. I mean, he wants to bring them to heel and to fight them, and they usually raid and then disappear into the bush. And yeah. you just kind of rinse and repeat the cycle. Right. And he has to deal with kind of truculent frontier white settlers who can also be difficult. Right. So it, it, and and, uh, and and I think it's it's actually in many ways a mixed experience for him. So, you know, I, I mentioned when we were uh, introducing you that you've written this fantastic book um, with Williamson Murray about the strategic uh, conduct of the Civil War on both sides. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, Lee's style as a general, which in the general, you know, understanding of him as this, you know, aristocratic old fashioned figure, um, you know, part of the evidence that's popularly, you know, adduced for this is um, his conduct on the battlefield, you know, Pickett's charge, um, you know, sort of wars of um, a, a, a kind of a kind of war of maneuver um, that emphasizes a kind of heroism um, as contrasted with, you know, the unheroic conduct of Grant's army in the final years of the war. Um, you know, the, the relentless attritional um, grinding uh, of, of the South down um, uh, in the face of superior Northern resources. Now, those are both sort of broad stereotypes. I don't know if I've heard anyone, though, call them, you know, fundamentally wrong. Um, do, do you think there's some truth to it or, or you um, uh, do you see it a different way? I think the truth to it is, um, is Lee is incredibly aggressive, right? Lee has a temper. He's, he seems to have a lot of anger sometimes that blows up. Um, so he's sort of complicated that way. But it, it manifests itself on the battlefield by, by his kind of his willingness to, to, uh, to be very aggressive, to take risks. Uh, and this has been part of the argument, uh, critics of Lee, to just his generalship, never mind the whole fighting for the slaveholding confederacy, uh, that, 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 that this was you know, not appropriate. I, I, I'm here, I'm drawing a lot of my, my former teacher, Gary Gallagher, who used to teach at the UVA, just recently retired. You know, he, he makes the point, and he's right, I think, that though there is something modern about that because Lee's rationale for aggressiveness fits in with what Confederate public opinion wants, and that Lee has a strategic rationale, which is that uh, the Confederacy, because the weakness of its industrial base and its deficit in economic resources, that fundamentally a, a long war does not favor the Confederacy. Eventually, the Union Army will overwhelm it, which is essentially what happens. Um, so if the Confederacy needs a path to victory. It needs to actually score relatively decisive blows earlier in the war that will then essentially force Northern public opinion 
to give up. Um, and I, I do want to emphasize, this is frequently, I, I do this in my teaching a lot of times, even after Gettysburg, there are draft riots in New York City. Um, it's, it's a little known fact, 30 some odd federal conscription officers are murdered during the Civil War in the North. This is how unpopular the draft is. Uh, the war by 63, even by 64, is in fact wearing down on the willingness of white Northerners to, to fight this conflict. And Lee's attempt to score a, a decisive victory in Pennsylvania, right, is there is a logic to it. It doesn't work. That's certainly true. And, and Pickett's charge has, has there's reasonable reasons to certainly criticize that. Uh, but it is, it is, uh, it is not a, a kind of a it, it, there is a logic to it, although it obviously is not a successful strategy in the end. Yeah, yeah I was recently on a, a you know a staff ride at Gettysburg for a uh, for for a, a civilian organization. So folks without you know much military experience, kind of going through it for uh, for the leadership lessons. And uh, one of the leaders of the ride made a pretty robust, surprisingly to me, robust case for the logic of Pickett's charge, which you know obviously fails. Um, and I, uh, you know, I've always, uh, I don't think I necessarily think differently today, um, but um, I've always sort of sided with General Longstreet's skepticism of the enterprise. He didn't want to do it. Lee probably should have listened to him. And I, I've always been colored by my experiences growing up in Virginia. I had a very charismatic American history teacher uh, in high school. His name was Kevin Kelly. And I think he liked to tweak his um, Virginia audience of students by being critical of, uh, of General Lee. Now, granted, this is a Northern yeah. Virginia audience in the 90s, so I'm not sure how controversial this really was, but he, he seemed to enjoy it in his you know, argument, which essentially was along the lines of, if General Lee was really so great, why'd he lose all these battles um, and ultimately the war? Um, and there's you know, something to that, and there's something to um, you know, just taking the failure of Pickett's charge for what it is, but the argument for it, um, as you kind of point out, is if it had succeeded, and it was not entirely insane to imagine that it could succeed in many ways that, you know, the, the, the trick he's pulling, you know, you, you test them on one flank, you test them on the other flank, and then, you know, you see your opportunity and you deliver the hammer blow in the center. It's been tried before it succeeded. It's basically what the Duke of Marlborough does at the battle of Blenheim successfully. Um, and Lee just, you know, he miscalculates, um, how much resolve there is in the center of the union line. And it takes him too long, essentially get his act together and get the, get the attack mounted. But if it had succeeded um, and there was nothing between his army and Washington, you could see political consequences coming from that that would be very positive for the Confederacy. He makes a miscalculation of the fighting difference, the differential morale between the armies. He asks too much of his infantry and he, he is too contemptuous of the Army of Potomac. But, you know, but this is, this is part of uh, you know, this is the two sides of Lee's career as both kind of the engineer, tra the trained engineer, but that, you know, of course, war is more than just engineering. It's more than, I mean, we just saw that in Afghanistan, right? I mean, the, we gave the Afghan National Army all these complicated weapons. We gave them all this material support, but what did it come down to? It came down to who was willing to fight and die to some degree, you know, and who, and does one side have more of that than the other? And, um, and I think that's part of something that I think we forget um, including the American military establishment, right? That we can, you can, you can, you can technology your way out of these other problems. And it's, it's obviously not true. So when Lee is making these incredibly aggressive decisions on the battlefield, whether it's, you know, Pickett's charge at Gettysburg or any of these other, um, you know, extraordinary bold gambits in which he engages, which, which Lee is it we are seeing? Is it the engineer, the, the model West Point graduate, or is it the, um, 
you know, that sort of passionate um, uh, figure of, of mythology that, that, that is the other stream there? It's the latter. It's the pugilist, right? It's, it's the, that's, you know, I think he, that drives a lot of the, the tactical decision-making, right? Yeah. Sometimes he'll use his engineering, like for example, in the seven days campaign, he makes possible, this is, this is when he first takes command of what becomes the army of Northern Virginia. His, his, uh, his soldiers grumble about it. He forces them to build a bunch of entrenchments and things like that. But he does that for the sake of basically freeing up troops for an attempt to, for, for a very aggressive campaign, right? I will also point out that in, Northern, in, in the Overland campaign in 64, Lee actually proves to be pretty good at fighting on the defensive. Um, but his... His belief, and I think it's actually borne out, is that this is this is actually a long-term mistake because he he skillfully fights a defensive campaign, but he's basically forced down into a siege in, in Richmond and Petersburg. And Lee's position going back to 1862 is that once he is in a siege, militarily he's toast. Eventually the Union will win because they've they've bottled him up and, and the, the security of federal resources is just gonna be overwhelming. There's there's a there's a high level critique of his strategy that that runs something like, um, sure, you know, it, these aggressive plays had they ever paid off, um, you know, potentially could have won the day for the Confederacy, but the approach that they then um, that can't be taken because you're up, you know, invading the North and, and and being so extraordinarily aggressive, is to withdraw, you know, to to more or less give up on a place like Richmond withdraw into the vast interior, the, the underdeveloped interior, very few roads, you know, you know, virtually no railroads. Um, the rivers can only get you so far um, and make the North come for you there. Um, not exactly a guerrilla campaign, but one which takes advantage, you know, a bit like Russia has had recourse to on a few occasions of just space itself and to compel the Union um, you know, to get bogged down in you, as opposed to exposing yourself uh, in places where the union is close to its supplies um, on a regular basis and fighting the war up essentially on and across the frontier with the union. Um, you know, do, do you think in, in re retrospect that Lee makes a mistake by not pursuing a strategy like that? That That is, I mean, the, the dilemma I think the Confederates have is that Richmond is its capital, right? Once the Confederacy decides to make Richmond its capital to lose Richmond, becomes politically very problematic. Richmond is also important for a Confederate, what much of the little industrial capacity that the Confederacy possess, possesses is actually based in Richmond, it's at the Tredegar Iron Works. So it actually has an economic importance too. Um, you are right though. I mean, the, the actually other model, um, it's not just Russia, it's what George Washington does. Um, right, 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 right. After, after losing New York, New York City, Washington deliberately avoids being being forced into a pitched battle unless he he, he knows all the, the ducks have lined up because he knows how risky that is for him and and washington attempts a, a kind of an opposite strategy um, you know part of the i would say part of the problem for the confederacy is that they should have done the trade space for time move they should have done it in the west um and uh but they don't <laughs> Uh, 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 they make an attempt to do a cordon defense early in the war, and in many ways, they're already on their back foot. Um, but, but that is, I, I think, you know, it's, you know, when we talk about our recent failed wars, you know, in the United States, quite frankly, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, which I guess it's maybe, who knows what we want, how we want to care, but obviously Afghanistan should be counted as a failure. Sure. Uh, there are always what ifs, and, and I think a reasonable what if will always be, well, 
well, we did work. Maybe it had some reasons for it, but there's always to some degree a reasonable question. Well, we should have obviously tried something else because what was tried didn't work. If you look at Iraq, I think the two versions are maybe the invasion of Iraq wasn't such a great idea. There's always going to be an argument for that. Um, but later on, the other argument will be, well, maybe withdrawal wasn't such a good idea and not not trying to do something in Syria also was not a good idea, right? And, uh, um, and you know, and it's, it's just one of those hard counterfactuals, but it's a question that always has to be asked. Wayne Shea, great conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.